talking effectively about the same project but we're talking about uh, the the data that we gathered specifically at Lincoln, the University of Lincoln when I worked there, I'm now at the University of Bath and Rachel's at the University of Lincoln and um, we're also going to be talking more theoretically and conceptually about how to think think about this. So, is that clicking? So the, the problem that we want, want to address is how to theorise and conceptualise employability for master's students in a way that's practically useful and is underpinned by a notion of social justice. I don't think we've got, got there in terms of our thinking, but what we want to present to you is an idea that we've um, developed using um, Bernstein's theories. And um, that is draws on some work that... I've done with two colleagues, Monica McLean and Paul Ashwin, in um, undergraduate study of sociology students and tries to kind of think about how that theorisation applies to this context. And I think, think it can be usefully applied. We've kind of worked with it a bit. We did, did a presentation at SRHE at um, the conference this year and we've worked on it a little more now, but it still does, does need more work. So I'll be really interested to hear your views on how we can take this forward further in, in the future. So the conceptual framework is based on the sociologist Basil Bernstein, who I'm sure many of you have heard of, and there, there are three particular um, aspects of his um, work that we're drawing on related to pedagogic rights, pedagogic identities and knowledge structures, which I am going to explain as we get to the correct the slide in case some um, people don't know it. And and the way we're specifically applying it, we will demonstrate throughout the, the talk. Um, so I think what we're what we're what we've done is taken um, some of Bernstein's ideas and talked about the way that um, students need to develop a, some what we're calling a specialised disciplinary identity within the context of different masters. So this project particularly focused on STEM masters, whereas the other project focused on sociology masters, sociology undergraduates, sorry. And um, but we're we kind of saying, well, they still need to develop this this particular identity. And there are three aspects which I think map onto a lot of the things that Michelle and Inesh were saying that we could use to maybe structure our thinking about how about what. Uh, students need to get out of their degrees and how we might structure our degrees in order to meet those needs. But by framing it within a context of pedagogic rights, we try to also bring in the relationship between the content of degrees and broader society and think about how you build thinking about the relationship between postgraduate degrees and what they're going to do when people go out into the world, into the degrees. So students get a kind of uh, an education that um, will enable them to contribute in ways that are kind of just to them if they're studying these degrees, which connects really well to the, the conclusion of the last talk. Um, so we're, we've, in our um, study of undergraduates, we've, we've argued very much that knowledge is very central to what students get out, out of degrees, and we're kind of making a similar case here. But what we're arguing here is that um, master's degrees are really complex and wh where people's kind of identities are kind of focused at the end of the degree can be quite different in different disciplines and even within the same master's degree you've got often quite a lot going on 
on, in our particular site, and I suspect that's the same across a lot of masters. And um, so the type of knowledge that people need to get to be able to participate in society effectively, and we're relating that to um, two kinds of pedagogic rights, which I'll go on to explain. So our argument is kind of based on the idea that often um, STEM in particular, but maybe masters in general, are often framed within um, a human capital approach. The idea that you know, you're creating employees for a society which connects very well with people's ideas that they're going to get jobs at the end of a um, master's degree. And this study here by Winters is a kind of typical of a, of a human capital approach. So that study there is based in the States. Um, Look to um, actually compared the impacts that having um, STEM graduates working within an area um, had on the economy as a whole. And it was, it was kind of comparing STEM graduates with other graduates and saying actually STEM graduates have a bigger impact on the whole economy of a region once they're employed than, um, than humanities and social science graduates who do have an independent effect on the graduate. They're not on an area, but they're not likely to affect um, the um, prosperity of STEM graduates in the same way. So they're making a case that STEM are particularly important for um, economic capital. Um, so the human capital approach tends to focus on, on um, the economic benefits of degrees and often within government policy that's how we are encouraged to think about the value of um, STEM master's degrees which it doesn't kind of usually bring in notions of social justice. So there's usually a notion that STEM master's programmes should be based on a greater collaboration between universities and, and employers. And in our degrees at Lincoln, for example, they built that that was built in in a number of ways. So employers would come in or employees would come in and uh, give presentations or talks. Sometimes they would host students in their organisations. And um, sometimes there would be a sense that, with some degrees, particularly with major companies, there was a sense that you could create a collaborative um, master's course that would benefit both the university and the, and the business. But um, this sense that universities can serve the need for local business and address skills shortages was really complex in Lincoln. Small university, really new to STEM, so all the courses we looked at were very small. And um, that, although even though they had a major um, multinational company building a master's course with them, supposedly for their employees, they didn't get people onto that course. So the kind of story that went on through the university was, well, that's because the region of Lincolnshire and the surrounding areas hasn't got enough qualified undergraduates working in businesses, and businesses can't see the benefits of having um, <coughs> master students within. So I think in that university strategy, the kind of sense is that if you... Um, if you build the undergraduate, undergraduate degrees, then gradually around you'll get businesses and individuals who can start to see the value of um, master's courses. So again, it's kind of built on this sense though of economic, the economic value, particularly when it comes to um, STEM courses. But that isn't necessarily the focus of the students, as we'll go on to see. Again, the success of courses is often evaluated by student successes in the labour market, including their earnings, the satisfaction of employers with skill, the skills of graduates. 
So in some ways, it's quite a narrow framing that we're encouraged to um, kind of think about this, uh, the value of postgraduate talk masters. And although I think if you look, you know, if you do an analysis of documents, there's other things acknowledged that are acknowledged that STEM masters will give to students. I think the, underfund the bottom line is, oh, well, you can't run them if they don't do this. So I think that, that becomes a sort of primary driver for um, postgraduate taught masters in, the, in this field in particular, but maybe in general. Um, and then, but then there's also a kind of social justice agenda that's often tagged on the end, which says if you get more um, uh, participation of students from diverse backgrounds, that, that will address inequality issues, and often that's just kind of embedded within. In Lincoln, we had a particularly high level of um, first-generation students on the um, degrees that we looked at. Um, so, you know, in some ways, we did, we did get a sample that looked like that, and we're going to talk a bit about our, our sample a bit later. So, conceptualisations of employability tend to be a bit, bit broader than just um, thinking about economic skills. And they tend to be thought about in that way, that quote from York, skills, skills, understandings and personal attributes that make them more likely to gain employment and be successful in their chosen occupations, which benefit themselves, the workforce, the community and the economy. But that's a really kind of, it's very um, nebulous, it's kind of hard to pin down. How, how do we find out that, uh, um, whether a postgraduate talk degree is doing that? And then there's more kind of complex understandings, which um, Foria partially addresses, or she at least covers some of the um, perspectives on that, which start to say that employability isn't a, a characteristic of an individual. Um, and some, of the, some uh, theorists have looked at the way that employability is a product of what's out there in society and what's within the university. So it's kind of contesting, I suppose, the idea that um, employability is something that you give to individuals. Actually, you know, if you think about it, it might be something you think about in terms of what we bring to society. You know, it's a concept that requires a kind of, um, it's an emergent phenomenon, as I would say, <laughs> bringing, it, bringing those two things together. So our experience of this project, that was master's courses play a complex role in complex employment sectors. And the tutors, we did this, um, we're going to talk about methodology, but we've moved the slides on because we don't want to have to change this uh, microphone around too much. Uh, uh, master's courses seem to play a complex role. So in complex employment sectors, tutors support transitions in a myriad of ways. So we did this um, two-hour focus group with all our um, tutors. And so we got quite in-depth detail. This was sort of additional to what was going on in the project. So we built some things in ourselves, which we'll tell you about. And um, you could see that tutors were working really hard to support um, students that wanted to do a diverse range of things. So, you know, on one master's course, you could have people who wanted to go into business. You could have people who wanted to go on and do research. You could have people who are already working and just building up skills. You could have people who have no interest in working in the fields and are just doing it out of interest. So they're trying to juggle quite a... When you're thinking about employability in a really tiny masters with a tiny group of staff, there's quite a lot of things going on there that need supporting. And so there was a lot with us, a lot of sort of ad hoc support that was going on in response to the students. So I think they were doing, doing quite a lot. So, for example, in the... Um, 
in the sports science course, um, one thing they noticed is that they put on um, opportunities for people to work um, with, with clients. And they noticed that a lot of the, um, the students on the course, the thing that they cut out, uh, that this would happen in the evening, so the thing that they would cut out due to financial issues would be the extracurricular stuff. So you get the, the employability bit wasn't integral to the, sen you know, to the curricula when you should be attending. It was something that you got the opportunity to do on the top. So they were trying to address that and they were thinking, well, maybe we can get people to pay a fee and so they can earn some money doing it. So they were constantly coming up with ideas about how you can um, address some of these um, is issues that arise in relation to your really complex kind of group of students. So we're going to come back to this, we decided. And we're going to talk about the conceptual framework first, because that's my bit. Um, so the, the conceptual framework that we're trying to use, um, as I said, comes from uh, Basil Bernstein's work. And he talks about, um, in any education system, that students should get access to something called um, pedagogic rights. And the pedagogic rights have kind of three, level, three levels. They have enhancement, which is the right means of critical understandings and new possibilities. So in some ways you might relate that to um, kind of being a, get, gaining knowledge in some ways. Then inclusion, uh, socially, intellectually and personally. So that's kind of a, an, an opportunity socially to be able to um, use your knowledge to, to, to enact out a role in society in relation to others. So with our sociology students, for example, you would, um, <laughs> uh, you would, you would get um, the inclusion often from when they talk to their friends and families and they took one particular role or they took them out and you know, operate in a particular employment context. For, for people on STEM masters, they often need really specialised context to be able to, to do that, which is why things like providing employment opportunities become quite important because probably people don't let you practice on their dogs if you're doing clinical animal behaviour. And if you're a biochemist, there isn't you know, a public lab usually you can access to do it. So it's a bit different in uh, these kinds of disciplines. So to be socially, intellectually and personally included is second. These, and these are nested phenomena. So according to Bernstein, you can't get access to inclusion. So you can't take on a social on this role unless you get the right kind of knowledge to be able to do it. So you need, need the knowledge to be able to do it. And then um, participation is about the right to be able to kind of change and transform society in some ways, so to have an effect on it. So, you could, so in terms of um, STEM students, it's about kind of being able to intervene in the world that they work in and being able to do some of that broad thinking, I think, that you, I think um, Michelle put up a nice quote from somebody who was uh, talking about what they wanted the future workforce to be, which were people that could come up with ideas that could alter and transform and change the environment they work in. So whereas you might tend to think of a civic participation in terms of politics, this is kind of quite broad because it's set up within an educational context. Manstein is writing about education as well. But he would see that, and we would see that, as an important part of participating in a democracy. And I suppose it's similar to um, you know, feminist arguments about if all men do science, then science doesn't represent the, um, the interests of women. 
so arguably if all people don't participate in these ways at all these levels then uh, then some activities become biased towards particular things so that's pedagogic rights which is the first um, set of concepts and then what we've done also is we've drawn upon um, Bernstein's notion of pedagogic identities which he kind of sets up in his um, 2000 book as being almost alternatives that you might get out of education, but we've drawn upon these to come up with the idea of the specialised pedagogic identity, because we argue that you need all of these for it to work. Oh, is it? Okay. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, so the first... So pedagogic identity in Bernstein's terms is about embedding a career in a collective base which you get from your discipline um, or the subject that you study. A and you have a moral career and a locational career. So to, for him, you know, disciplines and the, the, what you learn at university is really important in giving you a position in society and a position to speak from and act from. Um, and so he talks about these, he talks about more, but these three are ones that we took and thought, for sociology students, they need all of these, it's not one or the other in some ways, although, you know, you might argue that, and actually, they are, um, for us, they, they develop that an iterative process, so it's not, they're not linearly related, but um, they maybe sound a little like they are. So, the retrospective pedagogic identity, um, refers to, um, actually refers to the, the kind of discipline of the past. So he would argue to get, gain retrospective identity, you need to learn the theories, the knowledges, the ideas that come from you know, the history of your discipline and the, the, um, that shape your discipline currently. A prospective pedagogic identity is about how people then take those knowledges and selectively recontextualize them in order to um, have an effect on and change change the world around them. So you take those ideas and you use it to think about the world around you and you trans change it in some ways. The instrumental pedagogic identity are things like the, the, the skills and the knowledges and those kinds of things. So they're they're, they're the way, that it's the identity you develop, but, it's, but for us we kind of took those ideas and transformed them into this, which is the idea of a specialised uh, disciplinary identity and for us the idea you would have based on the understanding of what sociology students would gain from their degrees you needed a disciplinary aspect which is based on Bernstein's retrospective identities so for our STEM masters they need to understand the relevant disciplines they'll need and at a particular le level so Bernstein um, suggests that in order to um, gain access to the type of knowledge that you need to gain a, a retrospective identity that will then allow you to get um, get a prospective identity that allows you to get to also alter the world and contribute to change that you would um, you need a knowledge that kind of almost lifts you out of your context so he's kind of juxtaposing it with knowledge that just reproduces so if you learn how to do something so you might learn, for example, in the lab, you might learn to repeat a process that somebody else has done. That wouldn't, for him, be powerful knowledge. It's when you learn it at the level where you can critique and change it. 
and decide what to do. So for a lot of our, our the STEM people we talk to, I think this um, this level at STEM master's level is the level at which they learn that, whereas for our sociology students, they were working in that kind of more critical day. From the first day they went to university, they were encouraged to do that. But I think some of these students had learned um, to, you know, a more reproductive version until they got to um, master's level, I would say. Um, so if you gain access to, access to the retrospective identity, you can then um, have a prospective identity that comes from the discursive gap, which is what I'm talking about, between how you think about the world and how it is, which then gives you space to change it. And then uh, the performative aspect is the instrument, are the instrumental aspects of performing the discipline skills and dispositions. And Rachel is now going to show how that works in our data around um, the STEM masters courses that we looked at. And we're going to go back to the other. Yeah. I'm not really going to go into too much detail about um, PET because Michelle and Ilesh have already discussed that. Um, but at Lincoln, um, just a bit of context about Lincoln if, um, for those of um, amongst you who don't know anything about the University of Lincoln. Um, it's based in the East Midlands of England. It's quite a new university, so it was the first new city centre campus built in the last 25 years. It's got about 13,000 students and there are about um, 2,000 postgraduates. It's recently opened some new science laboratories as part of a big science and innovation park, so it's very much focused on um, science at the moment. In terms of diversity, um, higher education statistics agency data from 2008 um, showed that the percentage of undergraduates whose parents came from routine and manual occupations was about 40%. Um, and then you compare that to the University of Nottingham and the students there, about 20%. Um, lots of the courses are quite small, they're new and growing, and the courses involved in PEP, um, some of them were just started actually. So in terms of our case study, um, we drew on the data from PEP, so the entry to study survey that Michelle talked about, the focus groups with the students. Um, but what we also did was we had a focus group with the programme leaders um, and we started to discuss the findings that were coming through from PEP with them and the students' views and experiences. And what we also did was some biographical um, interviews with students. So we asked for volunteers, um, nine of them kind and kindly took part. Um, they were quite time-consuming interviews, so we would sit and do a life grid with them where we would map um, from birth to where they were now, um, their education, their home life, their friends, their family, all the significant things that happened in their lives to build a picture um, of where um, they were in terms of their education and career and then we interviewed them using that life grid um, to talk to them about their MSc, what they thought um, they would do with it and where they saw their lives going and then we also analysed all the um, programme specs for the courses. Um, so there were five courses involved in um, Lincoln. There were biotechnology, clinical animal behaviour, forensic anthropology, forensic science and sports science. So as you can see, we had quite small um, sample um, sizes in terms of who took part, but um, if you think that the whole cohort for the STEM PGT for that year was 80, um, and 53 filled in the survey, so we didn't do too badly, and 48 of those students got scholarships. 
So over half of the PGT STEM at Lincoln uh, benefited from the scholarships. Um, in terms of things like disciplines, we were really over-focused on life sciences and that's because clinical animal behaviour um, has been running for a few years and, it, and it's, it's doing quite well. Uh, it runs full-time on part-time. It was the only course actually that ran on a part-time basis as well as a full-time. Um, most of the students on clinical animal behaviour are women. A lot of them are mature students um, who are working. And even when we um, were looking at applications for the scholarships, um, most of ours were from women. I think we were quite unusual, and I think that we were the only university that had a majority of women um, taking part in PEP. We did have an overrepresentation of students from first generation um, backgrounds, and um, most of them had come straight from university. We had a really big cohort of um, alumni because of the discounted scholar, um, the discount that they got from being an alumni plus the scholarship from PEP, um, that could make a huge difference to them. So. What I'm going to do now though is um, quickly focus on some of the data from the life breed interviews because it was such rich data and um, it was really useful in terms of thinking about this specialised disciplinary identity. So I'm just going to talk you through some of the students. Um, the first student's Edward, um, so I'm going to talk through the disciplinary aspect, a couple of examples from that. Um, Edward was studying um, biotechnology, he was first generation. He'd actually moved back to Lincoln from Warwick um, to live with his parents because he could study cheaply that way. Um, he talks here about the disciplinary aspects of his MSc and how that appealed to him. He talks about mechanisms and he just wants to really get to grips with how it works, understanding it. Um, and again, when we um, spoke to some of the students just before they left, Edward talked again about this disciplinary knowledge that he'd gained. And he was desperate to get a job in biotechnology, but he did say, you know, there aren't really many jobs in Lincoln. And this was actually something that the programme leaders um, shared with us when we had the focus group with them. This was Greg, he's also biotechnology. Actually, eight of the nine <coughs> biotechnology students were, were male. Um, he talked about his fears that his undergraduate degree in biomedical science, which he'd actually done at the University of Lincoln, didn't give him enough knowledge. He didn't feel confident enough yet. He was really worried that he'd start a job and he, he wouldn't know what he was talking about. Um, he sees the master's course as giving him this um, specialised disciplinary knowledge. And he also talked about how he was using these cutting edge technologies now, whereas when he was doing his degree he felt like some of the things he was doing were a bit old fashioned. So he was, he was seeing um, the masters as very much moving forward and he was going with it into the future. And Simon, he was a forensic anthropology student. Um, again, this um, disciplinary aspect. He'd already done a degree in forensic science and business management at another university. But now when he's looking back, he's seeing that um, that was a foundation and, and now he's specialising. And he talks about the specific knowledge that he's um, acquiring on the MSc. And he also talks about um, this sense of um, powerful knowledge that Andrew spoke about. He talks about now he's got the right to say something. Um, he's got the right to say, actually, I don't agree with that. And he talks about owning the subject. 
the second aspect, the perspective, um, the social aspect, this um, notion um, about new possible futures um, emerging from your, your disciplinary knowledge. And Kay um, had come back to study clinical animal behaviour. She'd actually started an English degree at Lincoln, dropped cow and started working and eventually she'd made her way back there. Um, she's got this idea that doing MSc will help her improve her practice. She'd, be, she'd been working in retail management for a few years but, um, while she did her other degree. Um, and she likes that she's getting to actually have hands-on experience with the animals and the um, like things like the puppy lab. Um, so it's becoming a lot more real to her in terms of what she's actually going to do with it. But interestingly, when we spoke to her just before she left, um, her idea of her future employability had really shifted. She'd gone from this idea of working for herself, which a lot of the people on this course wanted to do. Um, people were setting up things like um, doggy daycare clinics and were setting themselves up as consultants. Um, she really wanted to use these skills to further develop her knowledge and actually do a PhD. Again, Dana thinking about the future and how she's using this knowledge to imagine this future for herself. Um, she'd got this idea that she was going to um, make a big difference in animal welfare. Um, and I mean, she did. She she laughed at it herself really. She says it's a very grand aspiration. But um, when we spoke to her just before she left, she she reiterated that hope and um, this idea of making a big contribution because she'd developed her research skills during the course. Um, she'd come back in her 30s, she'd done a degree in dance actually, and then she'd worked as a veterinary nurse and she was doing this course while she was working and, she, and it just opened up another um, vision of the future for her that she could actually perhaps do a PhD now and make a contribution in that way. And this um, performative aspect, instrumental identity, um, where the students are thinking about how they're going to actually perform the discipline and how it relates to skills for the workplace. Uh, so Tim, he talks about gaining confidence and critical thinking skills. And when we spoke to him just before we, he left, he'd actually um, moved up within his organisation. He was working at the same time and he felt that that's because of his doing his master's degree and um, he was one of the most qualified people there. And we did find that the programme leaders did quite a lot of work supporting this aspect. And here Juliet's talking about developing herself and how the MSc is going to enable her to access networks via her programme leaders. So um, the idea that they've just emailed her and said, oh, there's an internship coming up, have you thought about applying? And, you know, she says before, I wouldn't have even thought about that job, I wouldn't have heard about it. Um, I was just typing forensic anthropology into Google and hoping that something might come up. So this idea that through her um, course leaders there were networks she could now tap into and uh, she felt she was really developing herself on the course. Again Diana talks about the MSc helping her build the confidence. Um, she was very lacking in confidence and even though she'd done a degree in animal behaviour and welfare prior to the MSc, um, she'd taken it on mainly because she thought it would give her the confidence to actually perform the skills that she'd learned um, and using peer assessment was really helping her um, start to believe in herself that she could actually go out and do that. And the last student, Laura, 
Um, so Laura was the only biotechnology um, student who was a, a woman. Um, she just applied for a PhD in geriatric oncology. Um, she'd actually done a degree in biomedical science at Lincoln. But again, she wanted the masters to give her the confidence to apply. Um, and, you know, Laura had had a really um, tough life. She'd got a, um, a genetic bleeding disorder and she'd had to move school and been out of school for big periods of time. And, you know, the Masters was this, this bridge to the next part of her life. Um, and again, the, the course leaders had these sessions in biotechnology specifically that were really um, geared up to things like um, applications and how to sell yourself. Um, so Laura could now see that she could actually move forward into the future and, and do a PhD. And she had actually got a two, one for her, her undergraduate degree, but she still didn't have the confidence at that point. So. <laughs> yes, um, so as you hopefully you can see from that, it's kind of quite complex what's going on in a lot of the um, master's courses, even though they're really small cohorts. And I can't imagine what it's like when you've got hundreds of um, students on a master's course, uh, you know, the, the variety of kind of aspirations and trajectories that students are hoping that they will um, be, able to, be able to go on. But one, one thing we thought, actually, is that the students that we talked to were, their orientation seemed to be really different according to which of these disciplines they were involved in. So we don't have um, the biographical and interview data for all of these disciplines, but we do have um, things from the focus groups and, and other data. Um, so we kind of had a look at the um, curricular documents to see what kind of identities the courses were kind of trying to encourage and what the kind of shape of the curricula was really. So we could, thought we could establish by looking at the curricular documents, we thought we could see, you know, the combination of modules and um, what kind of identity they, they were kind of focused on. So we have something like um, biotechnology. It seemed to be all about learning about scientific knowledge. And they, they, when we talked to the course leaders, they were saying it was a kind of really new cutting-edge area and the students would have to work in a really specialised context. They would have to go out of Lincoln in order to work there. So the re although they have to develop all aspects of that, those identities, that seems to be a bit more of the focus for those um, students. Um, whereas something like um, forensic anthropology combines the two a little more, because although it's got some kind of strong scientific disciplines in it, it's also got a lot of legal stuff in it. So they were going to um, big mass graves ab abroad, they could go to a trip to you know, excavate and work, work, on, work on those there, and they needed to understand the kind of legality of that. And it had a range of different kind of social science type knowledges tucked in with scientific knowledge. So although it had a strong kind of retrospective element to it, it also had a really strong prospective element to it. And also the, the nature of the discipline seemed to be different. So Bernstein talks about um, knowledges that are vertical and knowledges that are more horizontal. Vertical knowledges are more like traditional sciences like physics, etc. And he kind of suggests that these knowledges, they try to develop single theories that explain the world. So the theoretical theories try to subsume one another over the years. Whereas horizontal knowledges are, 
uh, horizontal subjects. They have theories like um, social sciences do, where you have you know ten competing theories trying to explain one thing. And as a scholar, what you would like to do is add another one on rather than get rid of all the others. So he sort of sees these. So we thought it, that's quite that kind of relates to the type of um, identities that you're trying to develop and the ways that you might think about, I guess, developing courses and thinking about how you integrate those, um, those things. We've got a range of kind of key careers down here, which um, I think you've kind of heard varieties of, of it, but these were kind of the main focuses of some of our students. And then there was a range of kind of employment activities built into the course to try and um, help people gain, you know, gain these, um, central identities, I guess. So although our tutors didn't think about it like this, so when we, whenever we talked about our tutors to, about, to our tutors about employability in the focus group, they would completely focus on soft skills. So the idea that knowledge is integral to having the soft skills in the first place, tutors don't tend to think about that, even though they are doing some of that integrating work. So we thought this is a kind of framework, maybe, because we, we want to develop some materials specifically for Lincoln. So we thought maybe we can adapt these terms. I appreciate um, Bernstein's terms are really clunky and would only appeal to social scientists like ourselves. But you could, I think, make nice little snappy titles that would um, probably um, have a wider appeal. Lost the clicker in the middle. And then we, we tried to think about how you would map that onto a notion of um, pedagogic rights. Yeah, I nearly finished the last slide. Yeah. Um, how you would map that onto a notion of pedagogic rights. So that down this side is the pedagogic rights, and across there is the identities. And we thought it might make you just start to ask different questions. And so we thought that the, um, the disciplinary identity relates quite strongly to um, confidence. Um, but the other's obviously important. So, you know, the uh, question about discipline is, is there the right disciplinary mix for the particular careers that students want? So on clim clinical animal behaviour, for example, where a lot of people need to go in, want to go into business, do they need some, some knowledge at the level of powerful knowledge that would help them to um, generate the business they want to generate? So could you start using this sort of combination of... Um, pedagogic rights and um, the pedagogic identities or a specialised um, disciplinary identity to think about the questions you might ask about postgraduate STEM slightly differently. Um, obviously there are related questions, when you ask a question there it obviously has a knock-on effect around what questions you would ask over, over here. So <coughs> in most cases you can't really learn disciplinary knowledge properly without being able to apply it somewhere. So it then gets you to ask it there. And then, so if we move down to inclusion, that maybe relates more to the social. And so you might ask, are there contexts for inclusion available? And you could list the contexts you would need to cover your students and think about what they might look like. And even if you can't do it all, it gives you a sense of the complexity, I think, analytically, of what you're actually trying to achieve in a relatively small <coughs> university in quite an um, economically deprived area with these small master's courses and the impact you're hoping the university will have. And then this, this down here, we've got the performative, and that relates partly to a participation. But um, is there an employment arena available and accessible to the students that are taking the course? 
And that was in the Fourier article as well. So it was trying to bring together this idea that actually the responsibility for um, people gaining access to pedagogic rights can't lie solely with the university, because you can give people all the employment skills in the world, but you know you can't build your own biotech business. We talked to the biotechnology uh, lecturers about that. You know you need a context to go and work in because of all the expensive equipment. So it kind of allows you to perhaps to think about whether your courses are, are likely to give people pedagogic rights and how you can how you can change them a bit, I guess, to get them to do that. I want to press that then. So that's the end of our bit. So. The specialised disciplinary identity is an ongoing iteration between the three aspects, so disruptions are easy. Uh, so you do get a sense with students it's quite a struggle getting all those things in. The example I gave of people not being able to come to extracurricular stuff, for example, um, because of financial or family obligations. Um, the courses that we encountered are really small, but they're complex and careers are quite individualised. So people are at different stages, they're different ages, etc. The key knowledges may come from outside disciplines. So it's offered really as a possible framework for understanding what's happening and what's going wrong. And that model should have been deleted. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's, um, that's the end of our talk. Thank you.